Hello and welcome back to the Emerging Markets Podcast by Telemer Insights. I'm your host, Rizwan Mahmood, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Stuart Culverhouse, Chief Economist and Head of Fixed Income Research. Stuart, how are you keeping? Very well, thanks, Riz. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. For today's episode, we'll be discussing the Republic of Ghana's uh, default on their external debt. Uh, just to sort of start the conversation, can you just sort of spell out the fiscal and monetary mistakes Ghana made which led up to the default? Right, so as you, as you say, Ghana announced a moratorium on its external debt in December, um, following a statement back in November that it would seek a restructuring. Um, ultimately, this was no real surprise, um, given the you know, concerns that investors had had over the preceding 12 months or so um, about Ghana's ability to essentially pay its bonds, given that the ability was diminishing and the debt situation was getting worse. Um, and before that, Ghana lost market access in the autumn of 2021 when yields started rising started rising because of overall concerns about the direction of Fed rate hikes, given obviously inflation was picking up um, globally and post the pandemic. And this was before obviously the, uh, the Russia's war in Ukraine when inflation accelerated. So that began to hit um, global risk sentiment, but Ghana was seen as particularly vulnerable given its essential reliance on external debt markets to provide funding for its deficit. Um, I think one of the, you know, maybe a couple of the mistakes, if you want to call it that. Um, yeah, you know, I think you know, assuming that the markets would always be open and, and there and available, possibly was a bit complacent. Um, you know, Ghana has had a track record of being able to borrow in the market and borrowed something like um, six billion dollars over 2020, 2021. Um, so it's it's always had that access, but markets are market sentiment can be fickle and things change. And it was exposed, I think, when the, with the global rate cycle after what a decade of low rates began to change. I think the other element of that is that it did run a very wide fiscal deficit in 2020, um, you know, nearly 20 percent of GDP, as I think it tried essentially to run developed market style fiscal deficits to counter the macro impact of COVID um, when really it's still a, a frontier low-income country. And I think maybe that, that fiscal deficit was, was, was too much. And associated with that, the, the government's the plans to get the debt deficit down, the sort of the fiscal consolidation strategy, I think looked a little bit slow. And I think markets then began to worry that they were maybe not serious about fiscal uh, fiscal consolidation and fiscal stability. Thanks, Stuart. My sort of follow-up question is, so Ghana is a commodity exporter. So why has Ghana's economic performance been so bad? One would have expected a boost in the country's terms of trade, given the commodities bull cycle we've been in, in the last two to three years, yet Ghana has gone from current accounts surplus to deficit uh, in the last few years. Well, that's, that's true, and that's been one potential salvation at the beginning of the sort of the the, the COVID and, and before that, that it's a commodity exporter. And more than that, it's got a, a more diversified commodity export base in terms of oil, gold and cocoa. So you know, in, in a sense, if one doesn't perform so well, then it's not so exposed as maybe a, you know, a pure oil exporter is. Um, and gold prices 
ticked up after a coronavirus pandemic because of the flight to safety. So that may also have helped its export earnings, obviously offset by decline in oil um, and oil production really in Ghana never really took off in the way that it was expected to. Um, so we did see this improvement in, in the trade balance, but I think the, the overall macro was still one as vulnerable with you know, double digit fiscal deficits. Um, and that improvement in maybe the current account side of things, you know, we were still seeing, I think, deficits on the financial account. So reserves were still under pressure. So it didn't really translate into the salvation that it, it might have done. And that partly reflects possibly um, you know, the, the wide fiscal deficit um, import component of that and high spending when maybe you know they could have had more of a demand compression to rein in imports in in in, in association with that thanks Stuart. let's move on to the to the to the debt side i want to focus the majority of the conversation on the euro bonds but for the context uh, for the context can you just talk us through what happened with the local bonds and the local debt exchange the domestic debt exchange yeah sure so at the time that the Ghana signaled that they would be uh, seeking a restructuring of their debt in the November budget for 2023, um, yeah, it was clear that they were going to tackle both the domestic and possibly the external side. Um, and in, in the run-up to that, I think most Eurobond holders and followers, uh, you know, one of the main vulnerabilities was seen as the domestic debt. Um, you know, before the crisis really erupted, public external, public domestic debt were broadly the same share, but the debt service on domestic debt was much higher. In, so in overall debt service interest, the interest bill, domestic debt was, I think, two thirds. So it was a, a more significant drain on the budget coming from domestic debt rather than, the, say, the external debt. Um, so I think it was always the case that if there was a, a restructuring and something needed to happen on the external debt side, it would, the question about whether it would be able to restore sustainability if the domestic debt was excluded, given how high the interest bill was and, and the short maturity of that, the refinancing needs were, were quite high. Um, so I think thankfully the government decided that they would include the domestic debt and they, launched a domestic debt exchange offer at the beginning of December, um, which, you know, although everybody was expecting that that should be part of the solution, actually the speed with which they launched it, seemingly with little, I think, negotiation or you know, building stakeholder support, meant that um, it was a slower process. And I think they extended the deadline at least five times until early February to try and get the, the, the deal over the line. It's now closed. Um, participation was 85% of the eligible debt. So that's a, a good figure. So this seems as a, as a success. Uh, but I say um, the, the path, I think, was a little bit almost shambolic in terms of how they handled it. And um, the repeated attempts to extend it and then change the terms. You know, ultimately, domestic debt holders were allowed to swap into a series of new bonds with longer maturities and reduced coupons. Um, you know, we haven't done all the numbers in terms of what that would save, but it should result in reasonably significant savings. Um, and then now that's out the way, we can turn to the external debt restructuring. Yeah, on the subject of the external debt restructuring, um, Ghana uh, requested uh, their debt be treated under the common framework. Uh, 
Can you just talk us through what is the common framework and why has Ghana selected to go down this path when so many of their peers have uh, struggled struggle with this? And you know, this, this restructuring process has, has proved to be slow and cumbersome. I think the only country to come out come out of the common framework is Chad, if memory serves. That's correct, yes, yes. Um, yeah, so Ghana, um, it requested a common framework treatment in, in January, but no, that, that request came after the debt moratorium on its external debt. So in a way they put the cart before the horse. So they, they, they announced the moratorium on the, on the bonds in December, and then only later did they seek uh, the request under the common framework treatment. And we'll come on to the reasons for that. The common framework is the successor to the G20 IMF initiative uh, that we saw during the pandemic that started as the debt service suspension initiative for low-income countries, essentially to try and save debt service to free up resources, valuable resources, obviously at the time, um, to divert them to more um, urgent spending, health and social care, etc. Um, the DSSI was aimed at bilateral debt and commercial debt. The commercial debt side of it was voluntary. Um, and in the end, I don't think any request for commercial debt treatment was made by any of the participating countries. Um, but there was a reasonable amount of um, debt service forgiveness or uh, deferral rather um, from the bilateral holders. Um, but in light of the fact that countries have still got debt problems as we came out of the pandemic and obviously now with higher global rates and, and an uncertain world, the G20 decided to extend the DSSI initiative into what we call the common framework. So, um, but it's a bit more, it's a bit of a broader uh, initiative. The idea is you know, under the DSSI, you essentially deferred interest in a PV neutral way from, from bilateral creditors under the common framework. What you're looking at is debt treatments when a country has a debt problem. And that could either be a liquidity problem or it could be a solvency problem. Um, and there's no hard and fast rule here. It's a bit, each country has different circumstances. And so it's a kind of like an ad hoc treatment depending on the circumstances of the country. Um, so what we've seen in the, the three participant countries more immediately after this framework was announced um, late 2020 and sort of came into effect early 2021, we saw Chad, Ethiopia and uh, Zambia seek common framework treatments and other than Chad the other two are still ongoing and it's been a slow process and so Ghana in light of the fact that it's now restructuring its debt requested a treatment in January and that process has begun I think Ghana hesitated because it has looked to the other three cases and seen them proceeding fairly slowly and holding up the restructuring um, you know and, and you I don't think it's in anybody's interest really to delay the restructuring. Um, uh, and so Ghana, I think, was hesitant, but eventually conceded. I mean, we might argue, what we, I, I question whether it was really optional not to go through the common framework, but maybe it is. Um, but ultimately it decided it. And I think maybe it did that on the back of some sort of assurances from the official sector, the IMF G20, that they would move the process forward more quickly than we've seen elsewhere. One of the sticking points has been the formation, in the other cases, the formation of an official sector creditor committee. 
in Ethiopia, that took several months to form. In Zambia, it took, depending on which time frame you want, several months or even 18 months to, to happen. And Ghana didn't want to wait that long just to get the, the official creditors talking. Um, and particularly as the official creditors in Ghana are a much smaller share of the debt. So arguably shouldn't really be driving the process. Yeah. So I think Ghana, Ghana was hesitant because of those delays, um, although you know, each case is different. And I think those three cases have peculiarities that don't you know, necessarily mesh with Ghana. Um, so it's, it's started, it's had the request and it now tries to move forward speaking to its bilateral creditors and then its bondholders. Uh, the, we still haven't had the formation of the Official Sector Creditor Committee. The IMF Managing Director at the G20 meeting a couple of weeks ago, again, urged for the formation of it. That will be a key milestone as and when that happens. And then hopefully things can proceed. Um, but the significance of this, just to go back a step, is that in the context of the IMF agreement that Ghana has, a staff agreement that was done back in, I think, November, you know, that agreement is wait in waiting is was subject to a couple of conditions, one of which was essentially the domestic debt exchange or moving forward on debt restructuring, and that box is now ticked, but also getting financing assurances from the official creditors. And that can't happen until, I say, this official sector creditor committee is formed and then um, negotiated with Ghana. So uh, the, the hope is that that can happen more quickly and therefore Ghana, the, the IMF programme can be approved and then we can, uh, then the, the, the debt restructuring and everything else will fall into place. I mean, it's critical that we have the IMF programme in place to reinforce both the financing and the policy framework. And I think a distinct difference here is in the other restructurings, China has dragged their feet. In Ghana's case, China is a lower creditor. In this instance, because of this, do you think bilateral creditors will take control? And in your view, does this speed things up or does it slow things down? And how does it sort of affect recovery values? Yeah, that's that's the, that's the key point. Um, China's um, a more significant creditor in those other cases. And, and for instance, maybe Zambia is probably the the better comparison, China is a third of public external debt in Zambia. And in Ghana's case, you know, it's probably seven to 12%. So China is not as significant a creditor. Uh, however, you know, obviously the bilateral creditors need to be involved. They need to provide the financing assurances. Um, we need you know, burden sharing so that um, you know, it's better able to deliver fiscal and debt sustainability. Um, but as I said before, the bondholders are a much bigger share of the debt in Ghana and nearly a, a, nearly half of public external debt. Um, and therefore, they might see themselves as uh, you know, in the driving seat and at more, more money at stake. And therefore, it should be up to them to negotiate the terms and then other creditors, the smaller creditors, um, you know, follow up and deliver on that. Um, it's not clear in this case how it's going to work, given these relative shares. Um, but you could imagine the bilateral creditors will not sit back and wait and be told what to do, um, even though they are relatively small. I think the hope is, unlike in those other three cases, one of the lessons from the common framework so far was to try and move the private negotiations and the official negotiations more in parallel rather than sequentially. That sequential process 
in Zambia has caused a long delay. Um, and maybe that can be speeded up by having dual dialogue. Um, the other hope would be that China, yes, seen as holding up those restructurings in the current framework, dragging its heels on Zambia and Sri Lanka, which is outside the current framework, um, dragging its heels. Maybe it has learned more about the process and the international architecture that it can act a little bit more quickly now, particularly as it hasn't got so much money at stake. But it remains to be seen, and, and this was you know, this is Ghana's fear that it will slow the process. Maybe the international financial institutions have to think creatively about how they can move this forward um, so that they can restore sustainability rather than let Ghana language for two or three years in default. Thanks, Stuart. Now I want to focus on a very specific bond, which is a 2030 euro bond. Um, it was issued in 2015. I think it's a, it's a billion dollar uh, face value. But 40% of the principal is guaranteed by the World Bank. Um, the entire curve, the entire Ghana, uh, Ghanaian euro bond curve has a a aggregate collection action clause, which effectively, effectively allows Ghana to restructure its entire curve in a single vote, subject to there being 75% participation. Under this provision, all creditors are offered uni uniformly equal treatment. If this is the case, what happens to, to the 2030 bond? Does this mean everyone else gets a 40% guarantee from the World Bank? Or is the 40% guarantee from the World Bank null and void if the 2030 euro bond is restructured with the rest of its peers? Okay, there, there's a, let's try and unpack that to use the expression. Um, it's getting into the nitty gritty of the capital structure. Um, so we have something like $13 billion worth of euro bonds across 15 issues. The 2030 guaranteed bond is, bond is one of them. And I think it's a rolling guarantee, principal and interest. It's 40% of principal, but I think you could call on that to pay interest as well. Um, so that that bond is guaranteed. But call on pay pay the uh, pay the interest along with the IMF schedule, or could you call on it early? Well, I, I presume you would call it if the guarantee is there to pay the payments that Ghana can't make. You, know, you call on the World Bank guarantee, so the World Bank covers it essentially under the guarantee. Um, and therefore, as those payments are either missed, uh, then presumably. A, a claim could be made under the guarantee and then that, that payment to bondholders is made under the guarantee. And then the actual amount of the guarantee declines in proportion and so it sort of erodes. And if you call, if you call the whole of the guarantee over time, then that goes down to zero. Um, but all the, all the payments that you can make have been paid. So it's about $400 million worth, I think. But as I say, that's not just principal. I think it could cover interest. Um, and of course, there's only interest due over the next few years because it's a 2030 bond. Um, so you know, some of that guarantee could go towards covering interest in the next few years, unless there's another treatment. Um, now, most of the, I think all of the bonds have been, so 15 bonds, all of the bonds have been issued since 2013 in terms of the, the, the vintage of them. Um, so 2013 is the oldest outstanding issue. Um, I think that matures this year. There's only a small amount left. Um, then there's a bond issued in 2014, and then there's a bond issued, this bond issued in 2015. Now, CACs were collective action clauses were essentially issued more routinely in bond documentation 20 years ago. So I think all the Ghana bonds 
should have collective action clauses to help them restructure a single series. Um, although we don't have all the documentation on Ghana, but I think that would, that would be the starting point. Um, so collective action clauses, yeah, we would expect they would be present to help on each bond. What you're talking about is aggregation, which is an, an evolution of collective action clauses. Um, aggregation was um, developed about a decade ago, um, and there's standard wording, the ICMA wording that was routinely put in bond issues from 2014-15 onwards. Um, again, these help to facilitate, facilitate restructuring and also to try and eliminate the potential for holdouts like we saw in Argentina. Um, so it tries to make it easier. So instead of looking at bond by bond and getting the right support, you could essentially aggregate over the bond stock and it didn't matter what individual bonds bondholders did. If you got enough support over the collective stock, you could actually go ahead with the restructuring and cram down on all the dissenters essentially. Um, that's quite usual. Um, now the 2030 bond, um, you might argue what well, it's a little bit unusual to put such such clauses in a guaranteed bond because it could potentially complicate things. But in the 2030 bond, it has the usual documentation. Um, so it has aggregation. Um, there are two ways of doing aggregation, what we call the two limb or the single limb. The two limb requires, and this is not just Ghana specific, typically it requires two thirds support across the aggregate principle. So all the bonds being restructured and 50% on each individual bond. Um, so that's the two limb. On the single limb, actually you could, with 75% support across the aggregate bond stock, you could um, do a restructuring of all the bonds, even if you didn't have any enough or any support on individual ones, this is irrelevant. You only need 75% of the aggregated stock, provided you satisfy the uniformly applicable criteria which is a complicated expression, but what it essentially means is that if you, got, if you offered the same terms to everybody or the same kind of menu or instruments, then you can, if, the, if you offer that to everybody, if you've got 75% in aggregate, then that's binding on everybody. Now, the issue here is, the issue here is not, not just that the 2030s, a guaranteed bond has this aggregation clause in it, and maybe it wasn't necessary, um, but what the issue is, it seems the suggestion is that this bond could be aggregated with all the other bonds. So despite its guarantee, which might make it a little bit more unique, actually you could treat it the same as everything else. Now by extension, therefore, yeah, if you can aggregate it or you put it in the pool of bonds, you only need 75% of the bond stock to restructure all the bonds, including this one, um, the guarantee is only finite and you're not gonna guarantee all the bonds. So essentially, essentially you just vote away the guarantee. It just disappears because it becomes meaningless. So it's a way around the guarantee. Now, um, quite what that means for the restructuring, it remains to be seen because obviously this is going into slightly uncharted territory. We've seen bonds with guarantees being restructured, but not in the post aggregation world of the last decade. So it remains to be seen what happens. Um, I think, yeah, they'll, you, regardless of the guarantee, there might be an incentive for bondholders of the 30s to call the guarantee so that they get paid. 
there's an interest payment coming up in April, 5th, 14th of April, I think it is. Um, the government has announced a moratorium. It's already missed coupons on four different bonds. Would it pay this particular coupon? We think it's included in the moratorium, so maybe they shouldn't pay it under that, but there is this guarantee. It's what it's for. So bondholders may want to um, embark on a process procedure whereby they can call the guarantee, get the get the guarantee called and therefore paid by the World Bank. But is the price action sort of implying that? Because the 30s trade at a massive premium, I think like cash cash price wise, they're in like the 70s versus the yeah. 30s, which are like mid mid 35s cash price. So they, yeah. they've been at this massive premium. So the, is the market sort of, what's the market telling us? I think it's, it's it seems to be telling you that it's going to have some sort of preferential treatment um, because of the value of the guarantee. Um, it's there, so why not call it? And if you've got fiduciary duties to your end investors, you've got a guarantee, why, why not call it? Um, and Ghana may therefore want to do that. But conversely, um, you know, calling it, maybe Ghana doesn't want to call it because ultimately then the World Bank would have to cover that potential payment. It's only 55 million interest, you know, it's quite small, um, but obviously it could accumulate, you know, the payments would accumulate for as long as Ghana's in default. Um, but it's only 55 million, maybe they don't want to call it. But the other thing is maybe they don't want to call it because it might mean that the World Bank is then consuming capital on its balance sheet against Ghana, and therefore maybe that potentially restricts, A, a it might make the relationship, the bilateral relationship a bit more fraught, but it might also limit the World Bank's ability to lend to Ghana going forward because it's already got this capital that it's um, you know, allocated and consuming a charge. Uh, which might limit its lending power, and maybe Ghana doesn't want that. Um, so maybe Ghana doesn't want the guarantee to be called, but then bondholders may say, well, we've got this guarantee, maybe they you know, pursue legal action to try and get it paid. So it could get messy. Um, yeah. and that's in the near term, but yeah, going back to the, the aggregation point, potentially, if this reading of the aggregation, and it's, sub, it's something for the sovereign debt lawyers to opine on, and yeah, obviously hat tip here to Mark Widemer and uh, Mitu Gelati in terms of, you know, highlighting this particular issue. But um, yeah, if that is right, then if this bond is pulled with the rest and there is sufficient support over the aggregate stock, at least 75%, this bond gets restructured regardless of what the individual bondholders want and they won't get the guarantee. And you know they'll they'll get what everybody else gets, and presumably that's not you know that's lower than that's more reflected in the non-guaranteed bonds trading in the mid thirties. Yeah, let's look at a scenario where the World Bank does pay, pay the guarantee. I mean, in this situation, once the guarantee is paid, Ghana becomes immediately in arrest for the World Bank. Uh, does does this will this debt to the World Bank now have higher seniority than private currency debt, and could this possibly stagnate a restructuring? I don't know how this works. I think that's that's a fear that has been expressed. Um, I think it may not be. Yeah, it, yeah. If it is a sticking point, then that's something again that might um, influence the decision whether to call the guarantee or not. Um, um, but equally, we're only talking fifty-five million. You know, I don't think the whole, of, unless you accelerate the bonds, but I don't think you can accelerate the guarantee. Um, then I don't think 
they're on the hook on the hook for the whole amount so it's just like a roll then when the next coupon is due in october there'll be another 55 million due etc and that that would just accrue um you know, it may be possible to devise a way where those arrears can be paid you know, we've seen arrears to the multilateral institutions and hippic countries being cleared by donor support so maybe there's a, a sort of a circular transaction that can go just to make sure that it becomes a non-issue because yeah you're right if nobody would want this to threaten the the restructuring and return to the, the normalization of Ghana post post default um, and nobody would want it to threaten I think multilateral relations. Thank you Stuart unfortunately we're out of time but thank you for your time it's been very interesting and thank you for our listeners for tuning into the emerging markets podcast i've got some trivia which other bond is the bank guaranteed bond in the history of sovereign bond issuance which which what sorry which other bond is also world bank guaranteed in the history of like sovereign issuance there's one other one right actually i was going to say this that it then potentially Sets a precedent for yeah, yeah. not using Argentina guarantee. 1999. Argentina 1999. Yeah, yeah. World Bank guaranteed. So I've got it written down here. Somewhere. Yeah, 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 yeah. Guarantee the first 250 million of a six part zero coupon bond worth 1.5 billion. Yeah. And then they sort of went back and changed their mind on it. They were like, they were like, once the 250 million's paid, you've got to pay it back in 60 days. But then once they paid it, they were like, actually, we're going to give you five years to pay it back now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to mention that, actually. I forgot to mention the precedent that it might set. Never mind. Yeah, cool. Good stuff. This podcast is provided for information purposes and represents the personal opinions of the speakers. It is not an offer or solicitation for investment in any securities, nor should it be regarded as investment advice. Telomer Limited does not offer or provide personal advice and no mention of a particular security in this podcast constitutes a recommendation to buy, sell or hold that or any security, portfolio of securities or enter any transaction or investment strategy, nor is any such mention an indication that any investment is suitable for any specific person.